Welcome to Conversations with Big Rich. This is an interview-style podcast. Those interviews are all involved in the off-road industry. Being involved, like all of my guests are, is a lifestyle, not just a job. I talk to competitive teams, racers, rock crawlers, business owners, employees, media, and private park owners, men and women who have found their way into this exciting and addictive lifestyle. We discuss their personal history, struggles, successes, and reboots. We dive into what drives them to stay active and off-road. We all hope to shed some light on how to find a path into this world we live and love and call off-road. Whether you're crawling the Red Rocks of Moab or hauling your toys to the trail, Maxxis has the tires you can trust for performance and durability. Four wheels or two. Maxxis tires are the choice of champions because they know that whether for work or play, for fun or competition, Maxxis tires deliver. Choose Maxxis. Dread victoriously. Have you seen Four Low Magazine yet? Four Low Magazine is a high-quality, well-written, four-wheel drive-focused magazine for the enthusiast market. If you still love the idea of a printed magazine, something to save and read at any time, Four Low is the magazine for you. Four Low cannot be found in stores, but you can have it delivered to your home or place of business. Visit fourlowmagazine.com to order your subscription today. On today's episode of Conversations with Big Rich, we have Tom Ways. Most of you have probably heard of Tom, but let's talk about Tom. Tom not only races KOH, he is a rock crawler, an extreme skiing professional, woodcutter, tree faller, snow machine rider, but also fights bears in his spare time. Tom, <laughs> great to have you on board with us and uh, talking about your life. Thank you, Big Rich. Uh, it's great to be here. I appreciate you taking the time to... Talk about uh, talk about my world, I guess. Yeah, you're a busy man. It's hard to fit fit this in, but we got it going. So uh, let's jump right in. and And where were you born and raised? Um, I was born in Pennsylvania. Um, was born and raised in Huff's Church, Pennsylvania, which is in Berks County. My parents uh, were both educators. Uh, my mom was a AP English teacher. My dad was a elementary school principal and we also had a hundred acre farm that was uh not a full-time farm but we had horses and cows and pigs and chickens and uh, mostly hay for the horses but you know we bailed you know three four cuttings a year three cuttings a year and we had probably 15 acres alfalfa and uh it was a hundred acre farm with a beautiful trout creek running through it and grew up running around on my three-wheeler and mini bike before that and um, definitely, uh, gave me the ability to know the work's not done until the work's done and some work ethic. And, you know, I got the intensity of my mom and ADD and my dad and I got a little bit of both. <laughs> and, uh, so that sounds pretty rural if you, if it was farm ranch life. Yeah, definitely rich. Um, I mean, right kind of on the verge of, uh, Lancaster County, you know, it's basically like, uh, South of Allentown, a little bit uh, southeast of like Trexler Town, uh, kind of in the Pe- Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania Dutch, borderline kind of the Amish area of right. Pennsylvania. Yeah, when you said that Lancaster County, I know that I've driven through that area a number of times and 
come across the car- the Amish carriages going down the road. Yep. Yeah, our first tractor was a 1932 John Deere Model A flywheel start tricycle cultivator under it. And definitely uh, when we moved into this farm in 1979, um, I was eight years old. And it's definitely uh, a lot of work. My parents were definitely brave. And, you know, moving into a 1800 stone farmhouse that had a slate roof that needed to be replaced in a barn that was the roof was half caved in and had two feet of pigeon shit on the second floor. And, <laughs> you know, it was definitely, uh, my parents full-time job was remodeling and making that house into what it became. And what did they do before, before moving out onto the farm? Um, we were in, uh, Bucks County before that for a little bit. And then, uh, and then we were in Quakertown briefly and then from there we moved to the farm and then that was pretty much my main upbringing was there. Okay. And then doing the like school and all that kind of stuff, um, like others that I've talked to that have grown up on the farms or ranches, you, uh, you probably spent more time on the ranch and the farm than you did in school. Um, my parents were big on education, but also encouraged me to play sports. And okay, good. I was definitely uh, trying to find what was right for me, for sure. And uh, I did a little bit of track and field, pole vaulted, and threw javelin, and played a little bit of baseball. Didn't really like it. Um, played football. Uh, played defensive safety, and really enjoyed that. And and then skiing was really my true passion. My cousin phil who lived up in the poconos was the first person to really introduced me to skiing and uh i just immediately fell in love with it and was completely obsessed with it and that just became my sole focus and and at that time that was really important to me and started racing uh uh mountain bikes there wasn't really a designated downhill mountain biking at that time but um i i pretty much wanted to to ski race that was my main goal and I met this one local uh, guy in Pennsylvania that had some gates and gave me some videos that I could study. And I wanted to start ski racing as soon as possible. And it wasn't uh, available as a, a high school sport at uh, my public my public school I went to. And uh, so I started training as much as I could. And uh, pretty much uh, the Keystone State Games was the first ski race I ever went to and uh, did well at it. And then. Um, went to try out for Green Mountain College's ski team in Pulteney, Vermont, and made the team and got a scholarship to ski race for them. And next thing you know, I was training and um, commuting up to Killington and Pico Ski Resort and ski race there for four years. And we ended up going to nationals three three out of four years. Nice. And what was your favorite discipline? Um, I always wanted to race downhill in super G, but we, we didn't have that possibility. Um, I didn't like slalom, even though I was good at it, I was definitely, uh, better at GS, but my slalom results were always pretty good too. Um, just, it was a little frustrating slalom, but I always wanted to do more speed events, but, um, I moved out to, I moved out to Squaw Valley and now it's called Palisades. Um, right. I moved out to Olympic Valley in 1994 
and at that time I was racing downhill mountain bikes. I was racing um, on the Grundig World Cup Tour and on the Norba National Tour, racing pro downhill, and came out to race the Mammoth Kamikaze and the Reebok Eliminator and the North America's Championships, was which was at uh, Squaw Valley. And also was doing the Downhill Mania Tour, which is based out of Big Bear. And came out to, came out and uh, wasn't planning on staying. I just came out to do some races and I had like two or three friends that I had gone to school with that had moved out here. One of them was Tom Brand, who was on the Pro Mogul Tour at the time. Nice. And um, he gave me his car to borrow, his Mazda, and I drove down to Mammoth and raced Mammoth and came back. And right before I left, I had broken my frame on my on my bike and I got introduced to Greg Forth, Forsyth from Cycle Pass Bike Shop which was on the West shore, right in Sunnyside. And he, uh, he said, Hey, you're more than welcome to build your bike here. And, and got, you know, I basically had the frame delivered there and showed up with a backpack full of parts and put the bike together. And he walked over and he grabbed it and pulled it off the bike stand and hopped up and down on it and went out and took it for a spin around the block and came back. He's like, you want a job? <laughs> and I was like, I, well, I wasn't planning on staying. And he's like, well, you got a, you got a job if you want it. So he was my first boss ever in, in Tahoe. And, uh, I got a place to live and, uh, a job the same day. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to stay. So I moved in with a friend of mine in, uh, Olympic Valley. And it was a pretty unique house at the time. We called it the gravity house. It's kind of an interesting story because Red Bull started their test market in Tahoe city and in Olympic Valley. And Frank Amali, who was one of the originators of base jumping and all these guys that were big into the bungee jumping scene at the time, which turned into base jumping, which turned into rope swinging and everything that went along with it. And uh, the Red Bull Air Force came out of that house and everybody else that went along with it. And it's pretty neat to see how big of an influence that the Red Bull program became in the whole global community that started you know right there did you know what was his name paul crandall i knew paul for sure okay definitely yep paul paul yeah i was uh introduced to him by dustin webster Mm -hmm. yep yeah basically tall paul um was a huge part of that program and then i think he went on to vita water and a few other things maybe gopro as well and yep um Basically, uh, kind of right about that same time. So early nineties, you know, the, the pro scene and in, in, in Squaw Valley was, was huge. Anybody that wanted to be pro was there and everybody wanted to be on the cover of a ski magazine and be in a ski movie. And right about that time, um, Lord of the Boards was a mixed discipline st- series that was starting out that was basically the beginning of skier cross and skier cross skier x which it turned into in in uh x games um became uh, a huge deal eventually became even an olympic sport now and uh i started competing in skier cross because at that time being good in traffic and enjoying downhill mountain biking mixing in my skier my my, my uh ski racing background it was really fun to to blend that together. And uh, um, a friend of mine, Greg Neblo, and I competed together. It was a team event where it was a snowboarder-skier combo in the first Red Bull event 
which was the Red Bull Ultra Cross that happened at Mount Rose. Okay. And uh, that was the first event. I think I think we got second in it, and I can't remember how much money we won, but it was like really exciting at the time. And I was like, okay, I got cash. I'm immediately leaving. I'm going to Valdez, Alaska, because I want to go heli skiing. <laughs> <laughs> and that was your first trip to, to yeah, heli that was ski. My, that was my first trip uh, to go heli skiing. And uh, at that point, I had just come back from Chamonix, France. Just spent like a month over there, ski mountaineering, all around Mount Blanc and off the Guidamadi. And at that point, like my rope skills were starting to develop and. I was really getting super interested in ice climbing. Um, rock climbing was was fun, but ice was just next level to me because it just opened up the possibilities of being able to ski and descend and climb anything. As long as I had my ice tools, my crampons, and a rope, I'd drop into anything. And that was just kind of the start of like me wanting to ski the volcanoes and the Ring of Fire and going after a bunch of different volcanoes and then things started escalating pretty quickly after that. So anything you could do to supercharge the adrenaline rush? Well, it was just, it's just neat to be able to go. I mean, to go compete in X games in skier cross was fun, but like it, it's nothing comparatively to like going to Alaska and seeing what the mountains have there and just the size and the scale. And then in terrain, it's been to, uncut. Oh yeah. And just pioneering stuff. And at that point there'd been a little bit of stuff done, but it wasn't a lot of it. And then there was, um, a lot of opportunities at that time to do different things. Um, I wanted to push the fast forward button as much as possible. And I went and got my EMT and, um, I wanted to start guiding heli skiing as soon as possible. It was super important to me. Um, I started skiing for, for Nordica, which was owned by Benetton at the time. And they had a really huge program. Scott Mellon, who was the head guy for marker out here in California at the time, all of a sudden was starting this whole new program and basically was like, Hey, I wanted to talk to you about you know, the future here and see what you think. And I was like, I'm all about it. Let's do it. So literally started designing clothes and designing skis and was able all of a sudden to go wherever I wanted in the world and go to France and go to Switzerland and start exploring Europe and figure out the different areas and the different snowpacks and different mountain ranges versus coastal snowpacks and what sticks to mountains and what doesn't. And then um, following that, I joined up with Arteryx when they were still privately owned Canadian company out of Burnaby, which is just above uh, Vancouver. And, uh, those guys were great. And right about that same time, I really was still cutting trees and making money in the summer doing that and trying to do whatever I could to get my land cruiser out here and buy a house and build a garage and get my land cruiser out here and do a spring over and put ARBs in it and get on Fort Ice Trail and see Rubicon and go to Little Sluice and see what it's all about and go to Cal Rocks and <laughs> see what you had going on. That's how we met. <laughs> and, uh, you know, just uh, the opportunities with Arteryx were just huge because those guys had a totally different approach. They were a true hardcore company that just wanted to 
let me push the limits as much as I felt like I, I could do and just, Hey, go do a good job. If you don't, we'll fire you. Okay, great. Here's your whole budget <laughs> for the year. Do a good job. I'm like, I can work with that. And, uh, you know, basically started filming ski movies with rage films at that time. And I think I did seven or eight movies with those guys right before that. I was helping Kevin Quinn from points North, which was in Cordova, Alaska and helped him open the first year and pioneer um, the area in court over there. And there's a few people had come, come from Valdez and Doug Coombs and um, Tom Day and a few guys with uh, some snowboarders back in the day had come all the way down to the Copper River. But at that point, like it was still very, very unknown. And I spent a season there and uh, basically my, sponsors at the time were like this is great and all but we really want you to keep traveling i was like okay so went back to doing some more ski movies um wanted to do some more exploring went to europe a little bit more and then was in south america and met some russians and (laughs) basically uh those guys invited me to come over and be their guests and to come to Kamchatka. Really? So um, I basically pitched a story to Powder Magazine at the time. And back then, it was kind of a big deal to get an editorial assignment. And it was basically a a photo essay. So it wasn't like they're going to send a writer, but they wanted us to just take pictures and then just write like paragraph blips that you could attach with the picture. And basically, the Kamchatka Peninsula... Forgive me, it's been a few years, but off the top of my head, I want to say it was a 450-mile-long peninsula that has about 75 volcanoes on it. Wow. Some are active, some aren't, but basically eight to 10,000-foot vertical ski runs, and a lot of them had never been skied before. And we flew. It was a brutal flight getting over there because at that time, you couldn't fly from the West Coast straight over there. So we had to fly all the way to JFK and then from JFK all the way over, over Greenland to Moscow. And then from Moscow, get on a Aeroflot, which was a airline and go from Moscow to Petropavlovsk Kamchatsky, which was their main nuclear sub base in world war two. Okay. And it was my friend Jim and I, and the photographer, Greg Van Dorstein from Jackson Hole. Jim, um, he's a great skier. Him and I had teamed up on a bunch of stuff, kind of starting at that point in time and had like-minded interests and abilities. And um, we basically flew over there and chartered a Russian heli, an MI-8, including fuel, and just flew south on the peninsula for like a week and a half. And just pointed at stuff and landed on it and skied whatever we felt like. <laughs> and it was pretty amazing. The whole time we were there, my friend Artem Zubkov, who was the Russian guy that put this together for us, he has a magazine based out of Moscow called Vertmir. And Artem, super, super interesting individual, had done a lot of skiing in the Tian Shan mountain range, um, basically the foothills of the Himalaya, all through China. And, uh, um, the ruble face and a bunch of really unique things early on. He was in 
Valdez before like a lot of people even heard about it. And the whole time we're there, he keeps telling us, he's like, Hey, we need to go to Krasnaya Polanya. And I'm like, where? And he goes, <laughs> Krasnaya. And I was like, okay, well, can we at least finish this trip first before we have to go somewhere else? And he goes, yeah, yeah, yeah that's fine. He's like, no, you need to come. You need to come. They're going to put the fifth chair to the Alpine. We need to be there first. We need to be there. We need to be there. I'm like, okay, okay. I'm like, where is it? And he goes, it's, it's, you fly into Sochi. I was like, okay. So we come back the next year. We try to pitch another story to powder. And they're like, you guys were just there. You can't go back. Like, why would you go back to the same area? I'm like, do you realize that country is really big? And they were like, yeah, 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 yeah. I'm like, okay, <laughs> fine, whatever. So we're going anyway. So I took a different photographer, Christian Pondella, who's a Red Bull photographer from Mammoth, Jim and I, and we flew over there again. And this was easy because you just flew to Moscow and then flew south like a couple hours, which was easy. And uh, we get there and it was double chairs running on diesel generator power. <laughs> and they're like, hey, this is a, an old retired K, KGB recreation facility. I'm like, really? Okay. And then we get up there and it's just these beautiful glades of trees and it was super, super cool. And like these like kind of like British Columbia, kind of like little spines, mini, mini Alaska kind of up high in the Alpine and then like fun chair line, like beautiful trees, kind of Japanish. And we skied there for a month and then, uh, there was a Russian outfit that had hel helicopters. There was a French outfit that had helicopters. And then Putin had a house right on the hill, too. And they're like, hey, when Putin comes, you guys can't ski on the hill. And when he comes and wants to get in the heli, you can't go in the heli. And we're like, yeah, whatever, sure. Yeah, see when it happens, right? <laughs> so, so literally, like, we're there. And then they're like, Putin's coming. Putin's coming. We're like, yeah, yeah, sure he is. And then like two days later, like they're like, we're closing off half the ski area. He's going to ski over here. We're like, Oh, they're for real. And then we were like, okay, well, we'll heli the day then. So we're like, we go out heli skiing. And back then, like Jim and I love to jump off huge cliffs and jumped off like a 90 footer that day. It was huge. And, um, stomped it and they were shooting video of it and get back to the bar that night because every you'd finish the day every day in the bar and it was just such an amazing welcoming culture and the people were so nice and it was pretty remarkable that i mean they told us that we were the first americans ever there and wow. then we came back the next year because we were like this place is too cool and then skied again for a month and then basically after that they completed this tunnel because the road getting into this place was like on a cliff above like a class five river. And then they're like, we're going to have the Olympics. And we're like, yeah, yeah, sure you will. And then they basically had the Olympics. So it was pretty neat to be there, you know, before anybody and to see an area and watch it develop. Right. Right. So one of the things that I've noticed in, in listening to you is that you remember names and places and, you know, I have no idea if you're pronouncing the names right, but I'm assuming you are. I heard that you have an extremely great memory. And that, yeah, that's true. <laughs> and that flying, like you guys could fly up on a mountain, and as you go up, you would you'd pick your line that you wanted to you 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 wanted to ski, 
and you could find that exact line coming back down. Is that just something that's innate or is it something that you worked on? Um, I think it definitely evolved. I mean, with skiing, it definitely uh, was something that definitely was able to, I think the right way to put it. Um, I figured out different ways to be able to trigger my memory and that's been helpful. So like I figured out that I do have a photographic memory. That's awesome. And I'm a little bit learning disabled on other things though. So like some things are super difficult. Like if you gave me a list and you just read it to me right now, I couldn't repeat it. But like, if I can think about a place and remember a memory, I can tell you every single rock. Like if I, if you're like, Hey, if you're going by, uh, let's see here. So say you're going to big sluice and you're like going by the pivot rock halfway up. Like I could tell you every single rock that's there. And I know other people can do that too. But like for me, like if I can remember a moment where I was going by a spot or like going by Miller Lake or being in the mountains, like to be able to figure out how to be able to visualize and remember it. And then be able to recognize your landmarks. And then for, for skiing, the biggest part is if you look at something from the bottom, you have to figure out the scale of it and then turn it around the other way in your head when you get to the top and still recognize where your landmarks are and not make mistakes and learn from mistakes. Right. So like an easy one is an example is never use a shadow line as a reference because it changes right? <laughs> <laughs> and you're like looking down you're like oh yeah i'm just gonna go down the shadow line and then i'm gonna go down there and i'm gonna go right well the shadow line moves by the time you're like okay i'm ready to go and there's nothing but rock below you <laughs> well the, the hardest part about steep terrain is it's just it's like looking off the end of the world it's just like looking off a giant beach ball like for whitewater rafting the same kind of thing where you're dropping down something and all you see is the horizon line so the steeper the train gets, the more so that's the case. And the bigger the scale of something, the more you have to tune into that. Because like you get to Alaska and you're like, hey, I'm going to go down there and I'm going to jump off that air right there. Well, is that air a 10-footer or is it like a 200-footer? And figuring that out for you is like what's important. And being being okay with where you can put yourself and knowing your ability and knowing like your limits. And I felt like I've always had a pretty good ability to like know where that limit is and know when I'm pushing too hard and know when I'm not pushing that hard and knowing where the, that line is. Yeah. Cause when you're out skiing like that, especially hella skiing, you're, you know, you're, you're not like, you know, a quick ride to the emergency room. No, you are, you are going to self-rescue. That's, that's the reality. You are going to self-rescue and you are the first responders and you're taking care of each other. And in a professional format where you're taking people out and taking them skiing, you're delivering experience where you're taking people out and matching the train to their abilities and reading where they're at throughout the day and throughout the week and throughout their trip and then trying to do your best to meet their expectations on what is reasonable for them and then giving them that experience and then bringing them home safe and hopefully giving them some of the best runs of their lives, you know? Right. 
that's created like lifetime friends that we continue to ski together. Sweet. So and then it kind of translates into off-road racing because right. reading train at speed is like what it's all about, right? And yep. closing closing train and, and 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 memorizing the hammers and now there's a lot of people that have all been down there for a while now and there's guys from the East Coast that have a lot of experience and millers and the blylers and you know there's guys that have traveled and you know been doing it for a long time now and I think all of us now have got a lot of experience with that place. So the pre-running is maybe not as important as it used to be in the past, or is it more important to show up with the right car? That's not, you know, wore out or just broken enough or not broken too much. And, you know, just how you can manage yourself throughout the week. So you're ready on game day. You know, that's what it all comes down to these days. Right. And are you going to, are you going to qualify and be in the front? Does it matter? Or are you going to start in the back and have corrected time all day? I mean, Marcos has proved that he can come from 98th or whatever and take a shower in the morning, you know, or I've qualified on pole and seen what it's like to be there. And I purposely qualified about 21st or 23rd last year. And I'll be honest, I, I kind of enjoy just, keeping people guessing on where I'm going to qualify at because you can be in the front, you can be in the back, you can be in the middle. And I mean, shoot that one year when I rolled in qualifying, I passed 80 guys in the first lap. <laughs> I started like 90 something. I started, I think I got 80 guys on the first lap and 16 on lap two. I moved to physical fourth and the GoPro footage all corrupted and we didn't get to watch any of it. Uh. <laughs> so mad. So I'm of the, you know, I've, I've never raced myself. Okay. I've, I've designed race courses, um, whether it was Vora or dirt riot, you know, of course the rock crawling events, that kind of stuff, but I've never physically raced myself, but. Didn't you race Jeep speed, Rich? Nope. Nope. I, I went down and crewed. I drove my Jeep like it was a Jeep Speed out on the Vora courses <laughs> and my Suburban as well. <laughs> Sometimes a little too much. <clears throat> but the uh I I don't I know everybody goes, "Oh yeah, you got to be out there in the clear air. You want that first spot." Man, I'd rather I think I'd be I think it'd be better to hunt people down than to worry about being hunted down. I don't know. It's pretty, it's, I think it's pretty humbling for a lot of people when they get caught and they have a hard time recovering from that. Right. And the thing about starting in the way back is the course is so burned in that you really don't have to navigate. You just, it's, it's obvious right in front of you. And I think that gives you a little more relaxation when you might be more stressed out if you're the guy in the front right trying to make sure that you don't make a mistake yeah because i can see where those transitions between at koh you know between those rock trails you have all those transition areas and it's you know it's desert racing but maybe not for very long not like the first lap typically is so you know those and you could you know you might pass two or three canyons um, that are the wrong ones. Yep. 
And we've seen that in the past where guys turn up the wrong canyon. No, I did it in 2014, I think it was, or 13, 14. You know, I qualified, uh, well, Nick and I started door to door and, uh, he's fast as fast as heck down, down the back of, uh, that Baldwin jump area there going down into Melville. And you know, I think he was doing 110 through those whoops through there. And, uh, I just laid in and just like, okay, I'm just going to do my thing. And I caught him. I think it was in sunbonnet or before sunbonnet. I can't remember, but I remember I came up and I remember Dave in the driver's meeting saying he was going to pull all the every man challenge signs down before the main. And I went pre-run and, only thing burned in from the pre-running was was the 4400 course and then after the every man challenge race that was burned in and the turn went right instead of left and i was like all of a sudden i'm in the front nick's behind me and i missed that turn and then uh i came out through all that and went over fissure mountain and i was like wow i am in the middle of nowhere i don't see anybody and then i came all the way around back to the bottom of jackhammer and i remember uh Gene Mooneyham stopping me and yelling at me and telling me this and that and the other. And and then I caught up to you at the bottom of chocolate thunder. You yep. were like, Hey, <laughs> Hey, you came running over and you're like, Hey dude, you got a problem. And I was like, well, the radio's exploding in my ear and uh, I'm just going to revert back to what I always say. What would Shannon do? We're going to deal with this at the finish line. <laughs> right. I got, I got to go. <laughs> I, I remember you looking at me like, what, what do you want? <laughs> All oh, you so... wanted to do is lay it, let, you know, keep laying it down. Oh, and I think by the time I got to little sluice, I was like an hour and 20 minutes ahead of everybody. <laughs> and, uh, and I, at that point I knew I was going to get a penalty. I didn't think I was going to get disqualified. I was going to get a time penalty. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to push this tempo so hard that hopefully, uh, I can make everybody else fold or break or whatever. And I remember getting to little sluice and, or not the little sluice to the, bo- uh, the back door and, that's funny. I call it a little sluice. <laughs> I caught that. <laughs> but uh, I remember getting to there and like, I didn't even see that guy on the second shelf and hopped up there. And um, I, I definitely wouldn't uh, in retrospect do the same thing I did and, you know, jeopardize hurting those guys. But I thought I would stick up on that hillside right there and it torque rolled left and I had to run it out and kind of bunny hopped over the guy's winch line, unfortunately. And, left out of there and kept driving all the way around and basically was heading back towards, uh, Galloway. And, uh, I was blowing bubbles. I mean, I, I learned a lot of lessons. My GPS was mounted too low. I was at the starting line before taking off and John marking from Fox comes over. He's like, your GPS is mounted too low. And I was like, great. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> and, then, and then I learned quickly that, the GPS was too close to my hand and with my big hands, when I went into reverse, I'd hit all the buttons on the GPS making the screen change. And it was a different GPS than I had in my car, my old car. So quickly became an issue where the GPS is on the wrong screen. I learned a valuable lesson about my food that I had with me. I used Gorilla Tape to hold it into the interior, which was too strong. So as I was trying to pull it out, I also learned that you never want to grab your 
your gummy snacks with your race gloves because then you have gummy sauce on your gloves and then when you <laughs> drop your towel and then you rub your visor and then you have gummy sauce with dust sticking to it and then you're trying to eat your gummies and then all of a sudden the gorilla tape rips it all apart and there's gummies flying everywhere and you're like my precious and they and, and then you're you're absolutely bonking and trying to figure out what you're going to do and then i got a flat on the way to galloway and i was like this isn't good and i remember calling over on the radio and i was like this isn't good front left had no spare tire then had no didn't lay much tools and i was just running on a winger winging a prayer and uh i was like well i'm 30 miles from the finish right now and that tire blew up on Galloway. And, uh, yeah, and that it, thing came apart. And, and you I drove it on three, didn't you, for most for I did. the rest I drove of it? I drove it on three for, I think it was 27 miles. And uh, went up that sand dune alternate through the boulders with, uh, with the car in limp mode and got to the top of that hill. And I wish I had known, I figured it out later that season that if you just turn the car off, regardless of temperature, the stock ECM would, would take it out of limp mode, regardless of temperature. Oh, <laughs> so I didn't know that, but I drove from the sand dune alternate all the way back to the finish line in limp mode. I don't think I could go over like five miles an hour. I was in like first gear from the sand dune alternate all the way to the finish line. I remember getting to King Hill and trying to like, limp the car over that hill and it was just like please come on just get to the finish line and then we're getting to the finish line and dave came out and he was just like you're gonna have some penalties did you do this yep did you do that yep okay i think i ended up getting like an hour and eight or hour and ten minutes in penalties <laughs> and that pushed you to where i think maybe like eighth or something okay <laughs> Yeah, the physical first across the finish line didn't count, but it was uh, it was what it was. Right. So there was uh, I'd heard a story one time about I think it was racing in Hawthorne after I was no longer with. Uh, Ooh, that's a good one. With Vora, <laughs> is it one you want to talk about? <laughs> uh, no, it's not the greatest moment ever in my life, but okay. Okay. <laughs> well, yeah. I set it up. You can talk about it <laughs> if you wish. Um, okay. So basically, rock crawler, not very good coilovers, high roll center. Didn't have it set up very well. It was my first desert race ever. Uh, Kevin Yoder invited me to come out there. And uh, I basically was so excited, a little wound up. And, uh, hit the first road crossing like right out of the start and got a huge buck into a bicycle and just was riding the bike. And I don't think they kind of anticipated people wanting to go that hard, like right out of the start. <laughs> and there wasn't like a speed zone or anything. And I was in a nose wheelie and I'm like, Oh my God, there's an RV. Oh my God. There's a Yukon XL. So Ian Plain, if you remember, Ian used to be complained on the pirate board back in the day. Yep. Early KOH competitor. He was riding with me. And I'm in a nose wheelie, and I'm like, oh, there's lawn chairs. And I gather up some lawn chairs. I gather up a golf cart. And then I'm in a nose wheelie on the brakes and, like, stop at a nose wheelie and then, like, set the thing down, scuff the side of this Yukon XL, shove the golf cart into the guy's RV door, 
got his uh, lawn chairs. Ian looks at me and he's like, I'm like, he's like, I don't think we got a flat. You're good. Hit it. And I was like, seriously? <laughs> so I backed up and we take What off. would Shannon do? Well, we'll deal with it at the end. <laughs> and I was like, well, this isn't good, but you know, we might as well run the race. Right. So we ran the race and that was, uh, that was an interesting one for sure. I, uh, ended up paying the guys deductible and giving them some money and made it right. But it was definitely embarrassing and definitely learned my lesson that my, uh, my car needed a little more duty cycle and a little more love to be able to go fast in the desert. But that was definitely uh, setting the hook in me to love racing for. I loved Yerington. I loved Hawthorne and, um, yeah, <laughs> the <laughs> Hawthorne 250. <laughs> well, you, you know, that's, it's all part of racing is, is the learning curve. <laughs> well, I just was dumbfounded that someone was parked that close to the, the center racetrack. line of uh, racetrack on a turn. So I was like, hey, what are these it was, people parked right here for? It was Vora, okay? <laughs> we're, we're not talking, you know, at that time, you know, the highest caliber of, of racers or spectators. You know, Yeah, I was I convinced. Mean, I was in San Felipe just trying to beat Robbie Gordon. <laughs> <laughs> and they were, and they were like, they were in San Felipe trying to be like the natives. <laughs> if we right. don't touch the cars. <clears throat> So let's, let's talk. Um, I mean, your skiing is just fascinating. Um, the, uh, I, I love that. And, and maybe we'll, we find some, something to get back to that, but the, uh, and racing KOH, but people know, you know, that, that are going to listen to this. Most of us, most of us know, you know, your track record out there and who you've raced for and stuff like that and what cars you've had, but Let's talk about your wood cutting. Sure. And yep. your your love affair with saws. Oh yeah. I understand that you uh you have some really killer saws that you're uh that and that's why you can put down the amount of wood that you can put down. Besides being in great shape. I honestly, Rich, I've always tried to like anything, just really always be using the best equipment and if something needs to be modified or if it can be better to, to do it and to experiment with different things. And my climbing saws have always been super important to me. And the still 200 T's are just like legendary climbing saws. And I have one that's my dad's and I have another one that's one of my originals from like the early two thousands and they just don't go bad. As long as you take care of them and don't drop them, like, they're amazing, amazing tools. And, um, I'm a huge Husqvarna fan for falling saws. Right. Um, I ran a 372 XP forever till, uh, a few years back. I finally listened to some mentors that had ran the 390 XP, which is a 90 CC powerhead. And, uh, but at that time still, like I'd never really run anything that was really, really hot rotted yet and only had ran like muffler mods and things like that. Well, fast forward to last year, um, started working for mountain enterprises and rich their guy that runs the machine shop and the big shop there. He, uh, he ported one of my 390 XPs that was a company saw and 
did an amazing job at it. And then Tom Dines out in Sierraville or in the, he used to be in Sierra city. Now he's in Sierraville. He has a ski do snowmobile shop out there. He's an old time logger and a great, great friend. He did, uh, two of my other three nineties and went all in. I mean, just deck the head intake exhaust port polish and then through board the carburetors i always run a different size sprocket so i'm re-gearing i do a still chainsaw light bar conversion so i run a still light bar on a husqvarna because i think that's the best chainsaw bar and then basically have a simington uh, chain grinder so i run a, a, a square grind um grind as well and it makes a huge difference like when you're in big trees and, uh, you know, like I always equate it to gallons of, of saw gas, you burn a day, you know, it's like if I'm able to not have to be on a hillside hiking a bunch of hills, you know, and able to get on a bunch of trees, like I can burn like three gallons of saw gas in a week, in, in, a, in a day. Jeez. And, you know, I, I, mean, I can tell you exactly how long it takes for me to, burn through a tank of gas i mean i can burn through a tank of gas in about 25 minutes 28 minutes and uh you know you get into some 60 dbh or 70 dbh big trees you know there's it, it's it's really a shame right now the health of the forest right now just from the amount of fire suppression and the bark beetles that we have right now you know it's kind of almost getting to the, pan, the pandemic kind of phase right now where there's a lot of big beautiful trees that are dying really quickly right now the red fur up on the summit, the white furs at lake level. And, uh, you know, they're definitely hazards and, you know, preventively taking them down before they get too dead is really the only safe way to mitigate the hazard of getting them on the ground before they deteriorate too far. Then you lose options on how to be able to take them down safely. Right. And then the use once they're on the ground. I mean, um, certain, certain places they're getting utilized and sent to the mill. If the access is correct, if, uh, if they're in some places, uh, there really is no access. So, um, they're, they're definitely like, uh, lopped and scattered and, you know, put, put as low to the ground as possible and then left in place. Right. So working the fires, I mean, I, I've seen some big trees on, on logging trucks, coming yep. down out of uh out of these burns. I haven't seen what's coming out of Grizzly from the Grizzly fire, but the the one that ran last year up from Grizzly Flats to Tahoe, the trees that they've been taking down along the along 50 and and uh, Mormon Immigrant Trail <clears throat> yep. have just been I mean, when you get 3 logs is all you get on a logging truck. You know, that's big timber. For that sure. is big timber. And it's yep. sad to see that that stuff all burnt. It is definitely. And, uh, you know, honestly, Rich, I never really, I mean, almost 30 years of cutting trees, mostly all in Tahoe. And, uh, you know, I never really had experience cutting in the Feather River Canyon or anywhere out there. And, you know, I worked out in, on the Dixie Fire last year. And, uh, you know, I got into some really big stuff that was, in really obscure places so it had never been logged because you know most everything in tahoe is second growth or third growth now right so you're not really seeing the old growth like for example like at rubicon springs when you're coming in 
from Cadillac and you're coming in on the left-hand side right there, that grove of 200, 220 footers is just what you don't see at the lake anymore because those trees never were logged because there was no way to get them out of there. Right. So they never got, they never got logged. So, you know, eight, 10 foot white fir is just massive. But when you're on the Dixie, you're at a little bit different elevation. And then you get into the, the Douglas firs, which are just absolutely massive trees. And it's just a shame when the fire goes through and oftentimes on the uphill side, you'll, you'll get what's called a goose pen or a cat face where it lights off and burns the side of the tree, creating a hollow spot. And oftentimes on the big ponderosas as well. And, you know, it's just a shame seeing big trees that are just, you know, beautiful, beautiful specimens that can't stay because they're, into hazard a forester comes through marks them all and then you know hey this one's above a pg&e hydro plant or above a road that a pg&e employee moves in and out of to check on a hydro project and it could hit them so that thing has to come down so you know getting put on a bunch of different projects on that kind of stuff last year and then uh we felt really fortunate to be able to come back to to Tahoe this year and to be able to work on the West shore and basically start in South shore in the spring and then work uh, through Emerald Bay, through Homewood, through DL Bliss, Sugar Pine State Park and work all the way to Tau city. And then basically from Tau city been working on the transmission line between <clears throat> Tau city and Truckee. Nice. Which, uh, where was, which was where I was at today. Right. And that's, that's, that's home ground. So it's nice to work there. Yeah. It's just, it's, it just, I love working home turf. It's just, I love going all throughout all that area and just the other guys on the cruise with me, you know, it's cool to be able to say, Hey guys, this, this house right here, or that stump right there, or that tree right there and give people a little history and tell them about when I was doing residential and when I was taking a tree down at this house or at that place. And, there's so many houses and, and trees after, you know, 25 plus years of cutting trees up here, you know? Right. So then, um, you're cutting trees. You're working now for mountain enterprises, which is the Gomez brothers who yes, you sir. get to race against at KOH. Yep. Um, <clears throat> did they ever tell you to, uh, try to go easy on them? Um, no, I think those guys love as much competition as possible. And, uh, yes, you know, I, I love everybody's fire and I love everybody's passion to beat each other. And, uh, I know those guys feel like if anybody's going to win, they, hopefully it's one of the NorCal guys. So I appreciate that. And, uh, you know, last year it was kind of funny. Uh, Marco started like about 30th, I think. And, uh, we did some pre-running together on the week before and we always have a good time together. And he, uh, he, I think he started about 30th and, uh, he caught up to me and I forget what trail we were in. And I pulled over and I was like, go, you know, and then he pulled up and just like had his hands and waving his hands around like a crazy person. Then he pulled him back behind me and I was like, all right, whatever. So I started going again and 
afterwards he told me he's like well i lost my navigation and all that went to shit so i just figured i'd let you navigate for me (laughs) 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 so we were basically playing cat and mouse for a while and uh until he was like it's time to go and then he started hammering but uh i kind of i moved up pretty far and then i i cut a tire i cut a tire going through chocolate thunder and then we got going again. Things were going good. I passed a bunch of people. And then coming around the backside of uh, Aftershock again, things were going good. And then on last lap, I cut a tire going through Hell to Pay. And that trail was so raw and just absolutely violent. I, I mean, I, f- I feel like I went through a notch and then, the only line was to like land on like a five foot boulder, just take it down the middle of the car. And you're just like, really? And then I, <laughs> I got a tire and I was like, well, it didn't seem like it was that bad. I mean, I, I guess that's fair. And then, and then I was like, we changed it. And then I was like, oh, wow, we're out of position now to pit till after King's graveyard, which is like the end of the race. Right. So I was like, wow, I need to settle down. You know, I can't get another flat or we're screwed. And after, you know, the previous two years, I was like, I need to have a good solid finish, you know, and get a nice top 10 or better. You know, I think I was up to fourth or something. I felt like we were up in the mix pretty good. And that was even without corrected time yet. And, uh, I just kind of settled it down and we went down sledgehammer and we were just being careful. James Schofield did the first lap and he told his wife that he would get out and not stay in for the rocks. And then my friend Jake Capriotti jumped in, which was our plan. We did a scheduled co-driver change and I was amazed that James wanted to ride again. And I was super pleased and really, uh, felt fortunate that, that he would. And, uh, you know, that's our plan going into this year. He's going to, he's going to race again with me and we're going to, uh, go get after it again. That's awesome. So let's talk about let's let's talk about the the bear encounter. I mean, everybody's sure everybody's always heard about uh, you <laughs> fighting the bears with the tomahawk. So right. let's let's hear the story. Um, so basically, um, my now ex wife and I we just had got done doing a kitchen remodel, which definitely teetered on pushing us over the top. And she left out of town and we just got done the kitchen remodel where, you know, we spent some money and did a nice job, got all new appliances, got some beautiful custom cabinets. We had, uh, some beautiful Sitka spruce floors that we we moved to Island and finished off the floors and it was just beautiful. And it was right in the middle of summer in Tahoe. I mean, front doors wide open and, uh, I was out in the garage working on my car, trying to get ready to go down and race Glen Helen. And I was trying to lower the car and my friend, Joe Magliano, Joe, the toe from Reno, he was going to come up and give me a hand. And then he was going to go to a barbecue afterwards. And him and his now wife, Carrie came over and, um, we're in the garage and he's helping me change springs. I was trying to lower the car down a little bit. And, uh, he basically was like, all right, I'm good. I'm going to, I'm going to wash my hands. Where's your hand soap? And I was like, oh, let's, I'll walk you inside and show you where it is. So 
all three of us go walking up the front stairs and uh, you know Lel was out of town and I was in bachelor mode and I had two bags of kettle chips on the coffee table and I come walking up the stairs and I, and I look at the coffee table and I just see the two bags of kettle chips just shredded open, laying on the center of the hardwood floor with just like this huge diarrhea shit and this huge puddle of piss. <laughs> and I was like, holy shit. And then I just like out of the corner of my left eye, I just see this blur. And then I hear Joe, holy shit, that's not a dog. And I was like, oh, there's a bear in the house. So, I go running into my office and I know I just had come home from Alaska from being up there for the spring and I had two pistols I took up there that were all empty and barrel locked from, from flying home TSA. And, you know, I basically looked at them and I was like, Oh wow, my two pistols are empty and locked. So I'm going to go down in history right now as the guy that gets, mauled looking for his pistol keys and trying to load his freaking handgun <laughs> while I get mauled. And I was like, this is unacceptable. <laughs> so, you know, I think it was a year before that I, I kind of started collecting, uh, tomahawks cause I just, they're amazing tools and I'd carry one in my guide pack all the time. So if we were flying down into the trees, down into the riverbeds, you know, a lot of times you couldn't fit the A star into uh, an area and, make the helicopter fit for rotor clearance and tail rotor clearance. So I would chop down willows and garbage cottonwoods and bushes and whatever, and just make it so the aircraft could fit. So I had my SOG fusion, which was like the cheap SOG fusion at the time. And that thing was sitting against my filing cabinet. And I was like, well, there's a bear in my house and my guns are unloaded and I'm an asshole. So I grabbed my Tomahawk and I come out of my office. And in the meantime, Joe had run out the front door and slammed the door shut with me in there. <laughs> <laughs> and then, and then I hear him, do you want me to open the door? And I was like, yes. And I was, I was, I was livid pissed because like, I think I spent like 18,000 on these custom cabinets and with the soft clothes, like and everything. And they were just amazing looking. Right. And, uh, I was like, and then I was like, braiding fridge, the freezers tore open. I mean, the new cabinet, all of it, just furious. So I come out of my office, and the bear in the meantime had run into the bedroom. Now the front door's open, but he goes into the bedroom, comes running out of the bedroom, jumps off the corner of the couch, off the coffee table, and charges me. And I was like, oh, snap. Okay, so game on. So I'm blocking the doorway to the guest bedroom, the bathroom, guest bathroom in my office, right? Come to learn later, the bear had decided not to go in the wide open front door of the house, but walk around the back of the house, tear the screen window off the guest bedroom and crawl through that window. So he was, so he was that way. He was trying to leave the way he came in, which I didn't realize because why would you like rip a freaking window open when you could just walk in a wide open front door? But little did I know that anyway, I was in fear of my life. I was mad. I wanted, I wanted a piece of him and he's charging me. So the SOG fusion is only like 12 or 14 inches long and he charges me and I waited, waited, waited until he was like almost on me. And then I hit him with a blade strike right across the side of the temple, like right across the side of the head as hard as I could. And Joe's describes it as just like the sound of 
steel on bone and the sound of that he was like it was just undeniable and then i go chasing him like a crazy person running after him chasing him out the front door and his head's down and he's just running and i bounce i throw it at him bounce it off of him and i remember just joe just looking at me and he's like i'm taking off to that barbecue and he just looks at me he's like that just happened pow (laughs) or boom i forget what he said but i was definitely like okay so then i called i called placer county and i was nervous because you know the the bear league up here is very very liberal political and they want to put everybody on public blast that does any kind of a bear encounter i didn't want to i didn't want to shoot the bear and then have to deal with the public outlash so luckily he didn't come back and I spent the next like two nights on the roof with a compound bow and didn't get a shot at him. And, uh, I was definitely mad to say the least, but I was thankful that I wasn't hurt. And he went away and, uh, there was a bunch of teeth marks on all my new cabinets. So is that, is that an extra policy in your insurance? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> But, you know, that's like one of those writers, you know, oh, do you live in a floodplain? Oh, you can't get flood insurance. You live in a bear habitat? It should should be up here now. Honestly, they're terrible. I mean, I remember, uh, you know, everybody doesn't really realize how bad it is in certain neighborhoods up here. Like there's people that don't have a screen window on their first floor house on the floor story of their house up here because the bears just open sliders, open it cars terrorize rip out the interior break into houses i mean they're multi-generational trash bears now that are really uh like giant raccoons with no fear right (laughs) and and then you get all the the lovely liberal greenies you know oh save the poor bear you're in their habitat you're in their world there's lots of forest for them to go play in yep but there's no picnic baskets over there. Yeah, no. And I mean, like there's stories now of a bear that goes into Seven Eleven right at the bottom of Olympic Valley there. And he'll, he'll walk right in and help himself to the ho-hos and the, and the cupcakes and goes, grabs a few and heads right back out. So <laughs> almost, almost like the, uh, the, the bum rush thievery or whatever that's happening in the big cities. Right. Yeah. <laughs> God, and it's bears. Yep. <laughs> so, what is uh, what's on the agenda for Tom coming coming up in the future? Um, racing KOH. Um, hoping to have a, a nice solid year working with Icon and BF Goodrich and FK Rod Ends and pretty much all the same characters. Um, James is a huge part of my program. Um, he does a tremendous amount on uh, my motor program and um, the ring and pinion program. And uh, my friend Colt, he's amazing help. All my guys that come every year, they're just a huge part of my program. It's, it's, it's nice because there's not a lot of change in the program and everyone's involved and kind of knows their task. And, you know, it's a, uh, I'm looking forward to it. I always look forward to KOH. I really enjoy it. Um, you know, Jason Shear, great friend. I love him to death. Burger, you know, all the, the key players, you know, and 
Um, everybody's got a different motivation why they like to race hammers, but I think all of us love to be competitive and race each other and see who can bring their best a game on race day. And, you know, going to definitely, uh, keep cutting trees as late as I can into the winter here and then, uh, get ready for the lake bed. And then basically, uh, March and April, hoping to, uh, be up in Alaska with my, uh, with my good friends and, be able to get some great runs last spring was amazing i was super thankful to be able to be up there and we had four weeks of just uh great conditions the wind picked up at the very end but it was just super special we got to ski some stuff that i haven't skied that hasn't been skied since like 2011 which was neat it was really neat so looking forward to uh getting back at it cool picking up uh cutting trees in the spring and uh one last thing you're uh you, you, you're a Raptor owner, Gen 1 yes, or Gen sir. 2? Uh, I'm a Gen 1 guy for sure. Gen I've got a, a 2011 that was uh, Icon's uh, R&D truck, basically, one of the owners. And uh, Dylan Evans' truck that he did all the testing for all the different kits and the leaf springs and everything. Um, that thing has got a lot of stories. A lot of people have driven it. and um, I got it with 92,000 miles on it. And it's pretty much got the billet upper control arm kit, um, 37 KM3s, Pro-MB locks. Uh, we did some training cooler upgrades, how power steering kit on it. It's got the billet uh, cross member hydraulic bump stop kit in the back, Icon Leafs in the back, um, the 3042 bypass in the rear with reservoirs and 30 IBP with clickers in the front and I've driven the truck, uh, 173,000 miles now nice. and had it in Baja multiple times doing XO runs with the Raptor, um, with the Raptor runs. I've driven it to Alaska and back to go guide. And I mean, I just love average speed and to be able to tell you my miles per gallon from Reno to Haynes, Alaska, it was 3,075 miles. And I think I averaged over 75 miles an hour the whole way in the middle of winter in the snow. <laughs> um, they're great trucks. I, I'm, I'm absolutely a huge fan of them. Um, they just roll out with 488s, 37s at 90, 100 mile an hour, just lays right out. And uh, I just got another one, uh, 2013, two weeks ago. Uh, terrain tan factory uh, truck. It's got high miles on it, but. Um, James Schofield is building me, uh, a forged motor that I had on order. So I'm going to have some options to be able to throw a motor in, uh, in either of the trucks really, to be honest. And, um, basically have a Sunday truck and then have, uh, you know, the 2011 is, I mean, James is, was blown away. He flew out last year. He drove it down while I towed the, the race trailer with the race car in it and the dually and. We put new tires on it before the ra- before the hammers and, you know, drive down to the hammers, put everybody in it, go pre-run the desert, drive around the pits all week long, drive over to BFG, pick up bead locks you're getting mounted, bring them back to the pits, and then run it all week long, two weeks worth, and then drive it all the way back home again, and then load it up with chainsaws and take it to work. <laughs> nice. Yeah, I'm a I'm a big Raptor fan. I've, I've got a 12, and... Uh, <clears throat> It's pretty much still stock, 
but uh, that's hopefully going to change now that I'm retiring from the uh, the competition end of off-road events. <clears throat> yep. Not having to put on the boots on the ground at the rock crawls. I'm going to start sure. doing some uh, some social runs, taking people yeah. on places that they will never see on their own. So all over Nevada and uh, some places in California, do some Raptor runs myself. And uh, so I'd like to talk to you about about picking your brain on some of the stuff on on those kind of things. I've, and I've got uh, a great uh, a great a bunch of tracks in Gaia that I'd be more than happy to share with you, Rich. Cool. I mean, I definitely uh, um, I've got my favorites. I mean the the Immigrant Trail is definitely you know one of my favorites and running from Susanville from Honey Lake back to Gerlach through smoke pass and everything like that to me is like, that's special in there. And then continuing it from the dry lake bed and running it all the way to Lovelock through Porter spring and seven trout. It's really a beautiful section as well. And then, uh, running from, um, the high rock, black rock, kind of divergence right there and really seeing how big the black rock desert really is. And then running that all the way up past, uh, almost to the Sheldon. And then, uh, you know, I went all the way up to the Alford to, uh, you know, Jesse spot and check that out as well. Cool. Yeah. I'd love to get that guy from you. The, uh, that's kind of what I want to do is, you know, we've been, been working the rebel rally, um, for the last seven years and just got back and, you know, I've got a lot of track in Nevada uh, on Gaia now that I can, you know, lace together and take people places, like I said, that they will never see if they stay on the pavement. So, <clears throat> Well, I'm glad really you got cool to stuff. help out Emily with that. You got to experience uh, Chris Wu. Yes. And uh, Wu is one of my huge parts of my program. Wu is uh, my ninja. And... Uh, He's a huge part of it as well. <laughs> and so now you know where I got my information or things to ask. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. Awesome. So Very yeah, cool. let's, uh, let's talk again. Uh, it's been way too long and, uh, thank you so much for coming on board and, and discussing your life and your passions and your interests. And I think all your interests are actually passions, which is even better. So, um, Tom, thank you for the, God, I've known you now, what, at least, it's a good 20 years, clo- close yeah. to that, it seems. Yeah, so, totally. you know, I, I've really appreciated, uh, you know, knowing you and uh, hope to get to know you even better. I appreciate everything you do for the off-road community, Rich, and uh, thanks for having me on. All right. You take care. All right. Cheers. Bye. Well, that's another episode of Conversations with Big Rich. I'd like to thank you all for listening. If you could do us a favor and uh, leave us a review on any podcast service that you happen to be listening on, or send us an email or a text message or a Facebook message, and let me know uh, any ideas that you have, or if there's anybody that you have that you think would be a great guest, please forward the contact information to me so that we can uh, try to get them on. And always remember, live life to the fullest. Enjoying life is a must. Follow your dreams and live life with all the gusto you can. Thank you.